Bibles, beloved, and turn to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus chapter 30. I extend one more welcome to you if you're visiting with us. If you don't have a Bible, just look in front of you in the racks in front of you. You'll see one there. Please help yourself to that. Grab it and turn to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. We're in the 30th chapter, Exodus 30. We return to our study in this book, in Exodus, and this section in Exodus on the tabernacle. It might seem that we've already covered all that would need to be said on it. Maybe you're thinking that, particularly after the couple of weeks we've done on the priesthood, you would think everything has been covered. In chapter 5, of course, we looked at God's call for building the tabernacle. Remember, the call for materials that God outlined, the prescription for building, if you will. That followed with a look at the instructions for each individual piece of the tabernacle from the inside out. You recall that. First, there was the most holy place, the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, really the core of the tabernacle. This, the heart of it, the location of God's presence at the mercy seat. Remember that? The mercy seat, which was where? On, atop, the ark or the chest, the housing for the testimony, the law that had been given. God's presence resided there, right at the center on the ark. The ark was the only piece, actually, in the most holy place. Nothing else resided there. The innermost room of the tent, just the ark. Then the text moved to two items in the next outer room. So you have the most holy place, and then, like a ring outside the next room, the most holy place, or sorry, the holy place. One was the table. One of those items, the table, the table, remember, for the bread of the presence. That bread set before God's presence, if you recall it, regularly for regular consumption by the priests. Beside the table, and again, this is in the holy place, was the lampstand, the menorah of pure gold. It held the light. So in the holy place was the perpetual bread and the unending light. Those were the two items, two of the three, and we're going to look at a third today that was in that room. Next was the tent that surrounded those two rooms, the structure itself, the tabernacle tent itself. We examine the instructions, you remember, for the curtains, the frames, and the veils in chapter 26. And that was followed with a look at the altar. Do you remember that? The place of sacrifice located in the courtyard which was outside the tent, the public space, the public place where sacrifice was brought. Then in chapters 28 and 29, this is what we uh, have left off with, was the priesthood, our study of the priesthood in those two chapters. God gave an entire chapter, if you recall, on the garments for the priests, the holy clothes, which was complemented by the consecration of the priests, the holy preparation. And all of those pieces in preparation showing us the weight of God's presence. Well, again, after that, it would seem that all has been covered, right? It might seem that. Yet, in the chapter before you, take a look at it, chapter 30, we will see today it reveals otherwise. 
They're not only a couple remaining pieces of the tabernacle that God outlines, but Yahweh addresses this, the manner and the maintenance of tabernacle ministry. In fact, the whole attitude of tabernacle ministry is what is going to be addressed here. This is the approach. This is the outworking of ministry in the tabernacle. Which, of course, when we hear language like that, we immediately recognize an outworking of ministry in God's presence is worship. That is what life in God's presence is. It is worship. This is, as we've seen and will still see today, worship to the Lord. Worship to the Lord. We've commented so often here at Westmount that every creature that dwells on earth With a soul, every human being created in the image of God worships something. Everyone. Make no mistake, if you cross someone that says, I don't worship anything, I have no... No, no, you you do. The question is, especially incumbent on God's people, is who do you worship? Who do we all worship? Worship to the Lord is what's in view here. This is what's been prescribed by God, and we have a whole chapter that's going to outline this for us. This portion of Exodus, then, reveals this principle to us as God's people of this age. We're going to see the picture and prescription for them in that age for Israel, but we extract, this is what we've been doing in Exodus, extract the principle for God's people of our age, and we would even say of all ages. That God's presence, God dwelling with man, tabernacling with man, has demands. We can't miss this, beloved. God tabernacling with, God's presence with Israel, and hear me, God's presence with you has demands, says the Lord. It has demands. We'll be presented, in fact, in this chapter, four specific demands today. We would say four calls, four calls on worship. Let's begin and set the table with a reading of the first. Look with me at verse 1. Chapter 30, the Lord says this, You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding, on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering. You shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy To the Lord. Let us pray. Our Lord, we see 
these words, these divinely inspired words given to the nation of Israel, but also given for our help in principle, Lord, for us today. May we see them, what you're communicating, the divine truths, the eternal truths of worship in your presence. May we see them, receive them, understand them, and go and live them, Lord, in light of our time together this morning. We beg your enablement in Christ's name. Amen. We start with those opening verses, those first ten, to look at the first demand of worship, our first point, and it's this, fragrant worship. Fragrant worship. And as we think about fragrant worship, when you hear the word fragrant, you you think, of course, of smell. And our sense of smell has a particular effect on us, doesn't it? Our sense of smell It can be like a trigger for us when you think about smell. Now, it's true that those of us that have lost the sense of smell these days, they kind of just shrug, right? Just shrug, well, it's just smell. In fact, we mind it even less when we think of some modern sense that we don't have to smell anymore, right? Even more, we may be okay with it. However, upon further reflection, we realize that we do lose something. Without smell, we do. Someone reminded me that those that have lost the ability for smell have also lost the ability for warning sense. Do you know what I mean by that? Smells that warn you of something. Something's burning. There's a gas emitting or a fluid may be leaking and those that cannot smell fail to detect that. And scent, of course, is very helpful here, and we recognize that those scents, those smells, trigger something. They trigger. Similarly, there are aromas that activate other mindsets that are, and we would say this, there are other aromas that are more pleasing, more pleasing. I hardly need to remind you, but just by way of example, we have the smells like a bakery. Many of us love that steaming bread or a freshly baked cinnamon roll, that triggers something, not in your nose, in your stomach, right? It, it, it does something to you. The smell of spring, we yearn for that on a morning like this, I know. Thawed earth or that early blossom, right? Getting a scent of that early blossom flower. That scent brings what? It triggers renewal and hope. In fact, when you have that smell of spring, you know what I'm talking about, mud thawing. There's a little bounce in your step, right? What about the smell of clean? You know, bath companies make a fortune off of this, a fortune. The fresh scent of pure. I always get a kick out of what new berry or new type of grass can they put on a shampoo or a soap, right? It's some exotic berry, some wild grass, and what it's supposed to do, the fragrance of that makes you clean. Yes, scent and aroma is often associated, and here it is, with what is pleasing, what is clean, and what's pure. Now listen, why do we say all that? Because fragrant association is also true of God. Fragrant association is also true of God. I want you to consider Genesis 8. Remember Noah, when he gets off the ark, he takes, and remember, by prescription, the clean animals that he's told to set aside. And what does he do with them in Genesis 8? Let me read it to you. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Would that cause an aroma? Yes. Verse 21. 
And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, note the trigger. He smells the pleasing aroma. Noah did it exactly the way it was prescribed. And then this, Lord says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Now, to be clear, God's eternal sovereign decree was already not to destroy the earth again. Let's be clear about that. But what we see, what God does, is he works through the saints. He works through the obedience of the saints like Noah and and shows his plan, his eternal plan. It triggers the platform for his eternal plan never to destroy the earth again. Well, that similarly, when you think about a pleasing aroma and, and the scent rising to God and how pleasing it is to Yahweh, consider that now as we think about chapter 30. And as this chapter 30 opens, we see the same dynamic in the tabernacle. In fact, we have a piece in the tabernacle dedicated exclusively to fragrance. It's in verse 1, an altar, look at it, <clears throat> on which to burn incense. Now remember, this altar is not to be confused with the altar. Do you remember we've already looked at the altar back in chapter 27? That altar was the bronze altar. That was the altar of sacrifice. That altar was big and bronze. That is not like this one. This altar is smaller. In fact, if we were to go through the dimensions, remember we were returning to cubits and such, it's only three feet high if we were to convert that, and one and a half feet by one and a half feet square. So it's a very small altar compared to the one we've looked at already. This altar also was not made of bronze. Did you catch that? This one's not made of bronze. The big sacrificial altar is, but this one's not, and that one was in plain sight of the courtyard, and this one's not. This altar, look at verse 3, was overlaid with pure gold. Do you see that? It's overlaid with pure gold, which tells us what? That it is closer to God's presence. Closer to God's presence. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. So you see there, this altar has a very different purpose. Very different purpose. Just give me one second here. I'm going to take that as a cue to turn this off. So let's do that. So this altar has a very, very different function. A very, very different function. This one, again, is not only a smaller altar in a different place, and again, verse 6 cues us to its location, but what we want to settle in our mind is this is not an altar of sacrifice, and we're going to come back to that in a moment. And in fact, if we were to jump ahead to verse 9, in the second half of verse 9, we would see this. Israel is told not to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings and not to pour a drink offering on it. So if it wasn't clear already by its composition, by its location, now Yahweh says, this is what you're not to do on it. It is an altar, but it's not an altar for sacrifice. This altar, no, instead was, God says, for incense. It was specifically for burning that. 
Now, incense burning, and especially as a gesture before a deity, has always been found in the ancient religions. In fact, as you think about incense burning right now, maybe what conjures up in your mind are different religions. Someone robed, offering up incense to a deity. In fact, this is very common in antiquity and as a form of worship to their deity. Always seeking to engage the senses of the deity. That's, that's one of the hallmarks of the false religion, right? Trying to engage the senses so they offer up incense to them. Yes, it's true. False religion will always have incense. And you know, that's very ironic because when you think about incense, then maybe you think of robes, you think of liturgy, and incense always has this ring of liturgical supremacy to it. That something very official is going on. You might think to yourself, or have, it's high religion stuff when you have the incense out. But what God does here, and this is important, is distinguish worship to him. I want you to think for a moment. Israel was formerly where? In Egypt. And certainly they burned incense in Egypt. So he is removing a people from a foreign place with foreign deities. And we looked at that, right, with the plagues. And he is teaching them, instructing them how worship to him is exclusive. This is worship that is to be distinguished from other worship to him alone. We could say it further, what we'll see God do, particularly at the end of this chapter, and he will say, incense, yes, but not their incense. Things are a sweet aroma to me, but not their way. God doesn't say here, just burn incense to me, any kind, without limit. He doesn't say, let's keep up with Egypt. Let's do it as the Canaanites are going to do it. God doesn't say that. In fact, you'll see soon, he says, no, those aromas are awful. They're awful. I'm reminded here of a previous life for myself, walking into very earthy stores. You know what I mean? In those incense cradles. And I think back now and I cringe. And what did you smell often in those stores? It was just awful. It's ungodly, if we're being honest. Listen, in some domains... In Canaan, there's nothing objectively pleasing about that smell. That smell was rebellion. As such, we're reminded here that contrary to our natural self and protests, we do need direction, right? We do, specifically and precisely. And God does that here, the mercy of God. He gives us what we need. Look at verse 7. On this altar, Aaron shall burn what? Incense? No, what does he say? Fragrant incense. That word behind the original means pleasing. A pleasing incense. In other words, not just any incense. A fragrant incense. And the modern faith professor, the ones today claiming faith would say, Yes, I know fragrant. I know a good smell. And as such, modern worship proceeds to offer their fragrances to God. And you know this under banners such as, if it's pleasing to me, it has to be pleasing to God. Reassuring themselves with this, it smells very fragrant to my own nose. And Westmount, at this point, you know the problem. You've been tracking with us not just in this study, but for the past few years. You know exactly what the problem is. Look at verse 9. 
God says categorically, you shall not offer unauthorized incense on it. In light of modern sensibilities and own ways, we need to orbit there for just one moment. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it. Look again, it's true. There is an offering, there is a worship, there is an incense. This is what the text is pulling out that may seem right, that smells aromatic to the giver. There is an incense that feels and smells like it's right to God. Yet it may be so wrong. There's a scent that is pleasing to us, but repulsive to God. You say, that's very strong. Well, as always, I do not want you to take my word for it. I want you to turn to Leviticus 10. In fact, there is aroma before God, listen, that is detrimental to the worshiper. Some of you might be bristling and say, well, that just is way too strong. Well, this may be hard to digest, but none of us are immune to this. None of us, brothers and sisters, are immune to offering what is unauthorized. And I want you to listen. We've learned a lot about the priests, have we not? Aaron's sons. And who are the first two named? Nadab and Abihu, the very first two after Aaron. You would say, if anyone's going to bring authorized offering, it's who? The first. Let's read their account. This could be just any day. After the instructions are given, Leviticus 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, there they are, the sons of Aaron, there's a reminder, each took his censer, now they're tending to the incense, and put fire on it and laid incense on it and offered what? Unauthorized fire before the Lord. By the way, that word there, unauthorized, it's czar. It's the same word used in Exodus 30. Which he had not, look at this, Yahweh had not what? Commanded them. They're robed, they're consecrated, washed, robed, ready for service, but with unauthorized offering. Watch what happens. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And no surprise, Aaron what? Held his peace. Beloved, this could be any one of those days. Remember, this is daily, regular incense tending for Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's own sons. But they get this wrong, and what's the cost? They lose their life. Church, I, I hardly need to press this point in principle. True of Israel, true of the church in principle. Does right worship matter to God? Yes, it does. This is why it's a big deal today. Right worship matters to God. You don't have a flippant God. The God that cares about worship. Now, we've commented on a number of unauthorized worship forms. We've talked, obviously, on our Wednesday nights about syncretism and our musical worship particularly, our self in our worship, inserting ourselves, the habit we have of inserting ourselves in worship. Let's take a moment and comment on the one most associated with incense, and this would be appropriate to the text. And this is most associated, the worship most associated with incense in God's word is prayer. Let's talk about that for a moment. Incense rising, you've heard it already this morning, like prayers lifted. 
It's seen in Psalm 141, verse 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, the psalmist says. Do you remember the Gospel of Luke as it opens up? It says what? Zechariah, his time has come. His division is on watch in the tabernacle, is serving in the tabernacle or in the temple, I'm sorry, ministry. And it says he's chosen by lot what? To offer up the incense. There's a priest, Zechariah, to burn incense. And what you need to note in Luke 1.10, while he is in the holy place offering the incense, what are the people doing in the courtyard? Verse 10, they're praying, they're offering up prayers, simultaneous ministry there, praying at that hour, the text says. And of course, as we heard, we heard Z read from Revelation 8, right at the end there of the passage he read, the angel is given incense to offer alongside what? Revelation 8, 4, the prayers of the saints. Fragrant worship is often depicted in scripture like the burning, like the rising of incense. And of course, it begs the question, like so much of God's word does, the implications of that, the implications of God's word. It begs the question, beloved of you and I and our prayers, are they fragrant? Are our prayers fragrant? Fragrant worship seeks God's direction. As we'll see later, God's prescription of the incense, not our own, not our own mix. As such, principally, it is prayer for his will, not ours. Fragrant worship is pleasing. Listen, it's not prideful. It's not prayers of pride. It's, it's prayers of confession. It's not prayers of accomplishment. God, this is what I've done for you. Most of all, fragrant worship is thoughtful worship. It's offered according to God, his, his character. Fragrant worship thinks about the words, the praise, and the petition. I know some of you have commented on this. I know I've been blessed by it. The men that think thoughtfully all week on the prayers that we will pray together in the pastoral prayer that happens here. Some of you have noticed that. Those aren't flippant prayers. They're poured over with prayer, thought, all week long. And I think you see the difference. And we pray, we pray it's fragrant to our Lord because they're thoughtful. By the way, especially when we think about that, prepared prayers, thoughtful words, if there's any remaining struggle with a call to fragrant offering to God, look at verse 10, back in Exodus 30. It says this, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns. This, of course, is the altar of incense. On its horns once a year, with the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year. Throughout your generations, it is most holy to the Lord. Aaron called to make atonement for the altar. Why? In anything, when we think about that, something that needs to be set apart, something that needs that kind of treatment, we recognize always in God's word is something that is consecrated to God. If this altar, in other words, Yahweh saying in this prescription, if this altar is going to offer up incense and aroma to me, it must then be made holy by blood. If it's going to be used as a tabernacle piece to offer up incense to me, then it must be made holy by blood. The priests were made holy in my presence, now this must be made holy. Beloved, worship to the Lord demands fragrant worship. That's one. Second, consistent worship. Consistent worship. Let's move on to the next command from Yahweh in verse 11. 
The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 garas. Half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord. So it's to make atonement for your lives. You've noticed now that the sweep and scope has moved a little beyond the priests, of course. Worship, flowing. what does worship now look like for others beyond the priesthood? This portion, the tabernacle ministry then, at first glance, may seem misplaced. You think, well, we, aren't we still talking about priestly duties? And even more, we've been outlining, or God has been outlining furniture and clothing. Now a census, it doesn't really seem to fit. In fact, you might say, what does a census have to do with tabernacle ministry or worship? Well, to understand the placement here, we need to go back. I want us to consider all of our study in Exodus. Do you remember back in Exodus 4, verse 22? There Yahweh told Pharaoh that Israel, remember, Israel, the whole nation, was what? His firstborn son. That liberation declaration and request was based on the fact that you have my son, my firstborn son. Let him go. That is why they were to be free, because this collective nation, this firstborn son, was not Pharaoh's. They were wrongly in bondage to Pharaoh when they should be in the service of God. Well then, a few chapters later in Exodus 13, we learn that the firstborn in God's economy had a redemption price. You remember that. There was a redemption price as they were coming out of Egypt into God's service. So redeemed from wrong bondage right, with Pharaoh, into right service, but there was a price to be paid, a redemption price. There, remember, it was a lamb, and it was offered as a redemption price, Exodus 13. This was not a price, now we need to say this, not to earn deliverance, because God was already granting it. This was a price that was a picture. It was to teach, and it was teaching this, that Israel, you belong to God. You belong to God. That's it. Well, that principle there of a redemption price for the firstborn, for God's people, is here too in Exodus 30. Look again at verse 12. Take a census, God says, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord. Same principle. Ransom, and we've looked at this already, is like an exchange. Here, an exchange to preserve life and Got some conditions here, like a plague. This is how serious it is. You need to do this or there's plague, verse 12. But more, this ransom price was specifically, look at the criteria in verse 14. For those 20 years and older, did you catch that? Those 20 years and older. And that's your cue in ancient times, and maybe in modern times, with some of the stories we're hearing out of Ukraine, that it's a description, man 20 years and older, those fit for war. Those that would risk. That's who's specifically in view here. And that's important in this text. 
those war ready, those putting lives on the line, those that would go to the battlefield and here for Yahweh need to first recognize that their life that they're putting on the line is not their own. They're putting at risk something that is not their own. I pray that informs our view of the integrity of life. Putting at risk something that is not their own. They've already been purchased by who? Yahweh. Their life is his possession. And of course, there's no price on life lost. But this token census tax, if you could call it that, was a tangible reminder to newly freed Israel. That in the days of wandering and war ahead, and there would be 39 years ahead of that, they were still gods. They were still gods. Now, why do we call it a token or a tax or a payment? Look at verse 13. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 garaz. Half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Look at that. As an offering to the Lord, half a shekel. The payment, the offering to the Lord, is half a shekel. A shekel later would become a coin in later times. And originally, though, before that, it was a measure. It was a measure. And one shekel was equal roughly to two-fifths of an ounce. That was one. So imagine a half shekel, right? Not a lot. The point is, we're not talking about a lot of value here, monetary value. It's a monetary value, here it is, beloved, that's affordable to all. You see that? That's the point. And look at verse 15. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for their lives. Some verses speak for themselves, right? You see that. Clearly in the verse, this payment was the same for all. No overpayment for the rich and no underpayment for the poor. All valued exactly the same in God's sight. And so it is with this offering. A consistent price, a consistent value, consistent God, consistent offering, consistent worship. Church, there's no different price for different people. All life valued the same under Yahweh. And I trust the implication is obvious. All God's people thus offer the same, worship the same. All God's people are consistently made in the image of God. All God's people are consistently sinners in the hands of an angry God. All God's people are redeemed by the blood of the same lamb. And as such, all God's people worship him consistently, not with different worship values, not a relative scale of worship to God. The rich aren't taxed more with God. Only earthly rulers do that. And the poor aren't taxed less with God. Only citizens petition for that. No, in God's economy, every life has the same price. And that is why every life needs only the same consistent ransom. And here's where it is particularly important. Here, physically, a half shekel for service. That's it, physically. To make atonement for lives going to war that could be lost. Spiritually, the price is not a half shekel. The price is what? The blood of the lamb. 
That's the price spiritually. To make atonement for lives, for rebels, for those at enmity with God. There's no extra tax on the especially sinful. Some of us would say, praise God for that. Nor is there a discount on those with a nice catalog of good deeds. There's no discount for that. No, the ransom, the redemption price is the same. Listen, the blood of the lamb, the blood of the lamb, that's, that's it. You either are redeemed today under that payment and are spared eternal war, or you will pay yourself and enter eternity at war with God. And listen, that means forever apart and in anguish. I call on you, yes, you, you, to consider if you're ready for that after you die. As you read the headlines of people dying, I call on you. I don't know who you are, but I call on you to consider if you're ready for death. All of our times are coming, whether by a missile or something different. Acts 2.21 says, everyone, praise God. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a reference back to the prophet Joel, speaking of the time to come. A beautiful time when not just Israel experiences salvation at the end, but prior to that, and in, a, in the way that Israel would, Gentiles would be saved as a way to enable Israel to be saved. And that's us. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. No conditions on the rich, no conditions for the poor. All who call, as such, the called by God are called to the same consistent worship. If the redemption price is the same for us, right? Think about it. The half shekel for the Israelite warrior, right? The the blood of the lamb for anyone that would call on the name of the Lord. Thus, it stands to reason that the worship for those redeemed would be the same. No grid there. And church, listen, just so we're clear, which for us, church, we would say it's not a half shekel for some and a full shekel for others. I think we can trick ourselves into thinking that. Only the really holy ones give really special worship in the church, the really smart ones. No, it's not more time in God's word only for the smarter or less time in God's word because he understands for the busy. That's not the way it works with God. Not more service, like I say, for the really holy people. The people that seem like they're really on fire for God, they're the ones that need to be serving God. Me, I'm just trying to live life. It's not less service for the ordinary folk. That's not the way that it works with God. We don't use that scale. Because it's not consistent, but our God is consistent. And he demands consistent worship. And it's not what we are called to offer, church. God demands of his people fragrant worship Consistent worship. And thirdly, daily worship. Daily worship. Let's read our next section, verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. 
The final tabernacle piece is introduced here, and it is a bronze basin. The fact that it is bronze should cue us to its location, right? Remember the bronze altar lying on the outside here, the bronze basin lying in the outside as well, the courtyard. In fact, verse 18 specifically is where we learn it lies between, note that in verse 18, the tent and the altar, right between the tent and the altar. And this bronze basin in the next verse, verse 19, is for, look at it, the priests to wash their hands and feet. Now, if you've been tracking in Exodus, especially over the past few weeks, you would say, didn't we see the priests wash already? Be a good question, right? Yes, we did. In a moment in chapter 29, that was the moment, the moment of consecration, the moment that one time of being set apart. There in chapter 29, the priests were washed before they were robed. Do you remember that? It was the moment of consecration. Presumably, they washed their entire body there, washed first to purify themselves so that they were prepared and fit for holy service. We looked at that. That washing was then, and this is important, at the first, at that past moment of consecration. Here now, same group, by the way, This washing detailed is demanded with every sacrifice at the altar. And in chapter 29, we also learn the priests are offering sacrifice how often? Daily. Daily. Do you remember? Look at 29, verse 38. Back a chapter. Now, this is what you shall offer. This is to the priests on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. So this is washing, Yahweh prescribes, for every single day. Yes, even twice a day with those sacrifices. If there's sacrifices twice a day, there's washing twice a day. And how important is this daily washing, this daily act as part of their ministry? Well, now chapter 30, verse 21. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. Their life depends on it. That's what the text says. And the life of their kids and their grandchildren too in the priesthood. That is continual daily washing as an act of ministry before the Lord. Beloved, that picture then, prescribed to Israel in principle for us, is a picture and a reminder for us that we too need regular washing. Yes, praise God, we have been washed We have been justified one time, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. Praise God for that. Praise God for that gift of salvation, that past moment for many of us, that prior moment of consecration. When we were washed, note it, by God, he did the washing. By the way, back in chapter 29, that washing, do you remember the consecration washing of Aaron? I want you to look at chapter 29, verse 4. We need to get this theology right that we see in all verses of Scripture. Chapter 29, verse 4, it says, You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. So are Aaron and his sons doing the washing at that first consecration? No. Someone else is doing the initial consecration to them. Do you see that? That would be them passively receiving the washing. This is important. Someone else washing for them. That one past time to consecrate them, set them apart. And why is that important? Well, here note this washing. Look now at chapter 30, verse 19. It says, which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet. Who's doing the washing here? 
Aaron and his sons. Do you see the difference? The initial consecration, the set apart by Yahweh, and would submit to you, whether it's the priests or us, by Yahweh alone. There, it was the passive reception of it. Here, it is the act of doing. This is Aaron washing his action. And noted, it's daily washing. The priests needed to wash daily. Why? Because they got dirty daily, right? Yes, with the stains of blood from the sacrifices in the courtyard, but also with what? The stains of sin. From their own choices and disobedience, that filth, along with the physical mess on their robes, had to be washed daily. Of course, washing at the basin here, let's be clear about this, washing at the basin here did not remove the penalty for sin. I think we get that. That wasn't taking anything away. It wasn't just, yes, I've sinned, I just need to go wash my hands. No. Only the coming Messiah could do that. Saints of old, like David, understood this. Only Messiah coming could do that. The washing that he alone offered and gave, his consecration was the only thing to take away sin, to place us in right standing with God. But what is represented here was the daily need that all of God's people have for purity and cleansing. And Christian, it's no different for us as God's people today. Listen, we are washed set apart, justified at that moment of salvation. Praise God, it's done. Nothing we can do can change that. Praise God. Nothing affects that. That washing is eternal. We're delivered and free because of that cleansing. And again, we say, praise God. But because our soul was cleansed doesn't mean our bodies stop rolling around in the mud, right? So how do we wash daily, if you will? Let me just offer you three brief helps. How do we wash daily? Number one, confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a daily confession in view here. This is a daily cleansing from all unrighteousness. We thank God for this truth. That is why when we pray corporately, like we do here each Sunday morning, we acknowledge that we're sinners in practice with prayers of confession, because we arrived corporately needing a wash from our week, often from our immediate days. Beloved, you wash daily with confession and repentance. That's the believer's pattern. The believer is one that doesn't sweep aside sin, doesn't say God understands. The believer is the one that says, I confess my sin and I repent of it, and I can do that because of God's grace. Praise God. Two, Two, this washing is a washing in the word. In John 17, 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. Note that word there. Set them apart. Consecrate them. Like we saw consecration in Exodus 29. Here, Jesus talking about believers. There with him, the apostles consecrate them. And how does he say that? By the word. And that links up with Ephesians 5, 26. It tells us that our bridegroom... Christ sanctified us, church, the bride, having cleansed us, verse 26, by the washing of water with the word. That's being washed by the word. Beloved, daily time in God's word is like a daily cleansing. Three, obedience. 
Yes, the fruit of genuine repentance, the product of the word, 1 Peter 1.22 says, our soul wash, our purity, is by obedience to the truth. Indeed, obedience is our daily scrub. It keeps our walk fresh and clean. Proved by loving, faithful moms, yes, but demanded by our loving Father. Listen, let us not miss the principle here. The priests wash daily and so do we. We confess, repent, read and obey. Rinse, repeat. Confess, repent, read and obey. That's what we do. That's the believer's pattern. That's how we live the Christian life as his ambassadors. That's our daily worship. One more in this chapter. Unique worship. Worship instructions end here with a look at the anointing oil and the incense. The anointing oil also takes us back to chapter 29, verse 7. Remember that, where the priests were not only washed, but they were anointed. And the incense recipe here is for offerings on the altar of incense. So get this in our minds. There's a recipe, too, that will be given here. There, there are substances that are used in the offering. Oil, and we'll see in the incense. This is important. This is the oil on the head, the beard, and the robes, like Psalm 133 vividly tells us. This is the incense that fills the holy place and rises up before the Lord. So let's read these instructions to close the chapter. Verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hint of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, Blended as by the perfumer, it shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony, and the table and all its utensils, and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, and they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, They shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in its composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on the outsider, shall be cut off from his people. The Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, stacti and onaka, and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense, of each shall there be an equal part. And make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting, where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you, and the incense that you shall make according to its composition. You shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off. From his people. You know, I could give you a full rundown there on liquid myrrh and aromatic cane. I could give you the nice genesis and history of it. And I could break down what galbanum is and what frankincense is. I know some of you wonder about that. But needless to say, at this point in Exodus, I trust the point of a text like this is clear. I trust. These are, verse 22, look at it, not just spices, but the finest spices of the anointing oil. And the sweet spices for the incense are not just salt-seasoned, but they're pure and holy. These are, as we've seen time and again, the finest ingredients, nothing less. Now, if we were not careful, we would just leave it there. 
and end the reminder. But here is where I pray extra efforts will pay for us. It's an extra few minutes to just consider what more is going on in these final verses. We don't want to miss two very important principles of worship before we close chapter 30 this morning. Number one, look at verse 23 and 24 for the oil. And look at verse 34 and 35 for the incense. Those are ingredients, but look at it, with a unique mix and a blend. It reads like a recipe, doesn't it? 500 shekels of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, 250 for aromatic cane, and on it goes. The same thing when you get down to the sweet spices. There shall be an equal part. I love that in verse 34. It reads like a recipe. Again, not only the finest for worship, but we need to make sure we see this, the clear instructions for worship. Do you see that? God is a God of order, not confusion. He's very specific with the worship that he demands. That would be one. Two, these are not only fine, specific ingredients, but look at verse 32. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in a composition. This oil is not to be poured on the ordinary person, the commoner. Why? It is holy. The oil is a -a one-of-a-kind composition, and this is no pedestrian matter. In fact, look at verse 33. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. You make this compound for someone else, something else, you will be cut off. So copy this oil for common use, or use it on a common person, and God says you die. And so we're clear that this is not just an oil thing, Look at verse 37. What does he say? In the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Same unique mix. Same instruction. God says this incense is exclusively to be used for me. In fact, look at verse 37. He says it's not even to be used on who? Yourself. Don't use it on yourself. Because, verse 38 Whoever makes any like it to use a perfume shall be cut off from his people. Use it for the common, and again, use this unique composition, this unique blend on you or anything common, and you die. That's unique worship, a composition made for God only to be given to him. That was the demand in worship for Israel, exclusive worship to him. And church, we must close now, land the plane of this chapter, and ask, what of us? And what of our worship? 2 Corinthians 2.15 says this, We, church, are the aroma of Christ to God. That's amazing. And that is true positionally, as we said. Something only Christ can do and has done, praise God. In Christ and only in Christ are we a pleasing aroma. That's your hope, Christian. Think about it. In all the mud we roll around in during the week, Christ is our sweet aroma. Praise God for that. But just because we roll around in mud doesn't mean that we get comfortable there. And I think we do, don't we? We we have fashioned all manner of comfortability with dirt. And again, probably we're all thankful that we're over time, because I mean, I to restrain in some senses in today's time to say it, but it speaks for itself. But just a few closing questions that this text begs when we think about our practical worship every day. Is your worship 
brother or sister, composition exclusive to Yahweh, or is your worship composition multi-use? Is it a multi-use thing? You can do it here on a Sunday morning. You can do it there on a Thursday night. Do you have the same output on other things? Do you have the same love for other things? Is your singing in church this morning, is it basically indistinguishable from your singing in the car? Is your reading of God's words similar to your reading of other words? The same time and attention and devotion that you give to other books, other words, do you give to God's word? Of all your adorations, does your adoration for God stand out and stand alone? Do you give our Lord what you give to others? Is the devotion recipe to Yahweh the same to others? Christian, God demands unique worship. Let us give it to him and to him alone. Let's give him fragrant, consistent, daily, unique worship. And I'm telling you, if that sounds like a lot, it is, right? It is, is it not? It's a lot. It's a big ask. It is. Because it's not what we feel is appropriate. We've been conditioned in this modern age to give to God what we feel is appropriate. And it's not relative, It's not this much for him and that little for her. And it's not sometimes worship and it's not common worship. We've been conditioned, yes, in the church today to give that kind of polluted worship. We're not called to give that. We're called to give all as God prescribes. The priestly principle of worship we've seen here today in Exodus is true of all of us if you are in Christ, the great high priest today. We worship to the Lord with the entirety of of our life. Beloved, as we close this portion, that needs to be pressed. And my prayer this week, as you leave this place today, is to ask yourself, what are you holding back? What corner of your soul have you fought with Yahweh to say, no, that's mine? What is it? Give it to him. Make today a day that you remember. You just lay it all down for him. You give him your all. This text and principle demands you give him your very life. And I will tell you something. When you look at earthly rulers, when you look at evil rulers invading countries, when you look at that thing that grips your stomach and you say the end is near, you will have joy in it because you've given it all to him. Can you do that? Not even just because it gets you to tomorrow, but listen, because he is worthy. He demands your all and your worship. Will you give it to him? Beloved, let's do this together. Father in heaven, God, we pray that you would enable us to give you what you're due. Not some, not common, not pieces, not what we feel, not what's relative. But God, enable us, please, we beg in Christ's name, that we would give you all of ourselves. God, we beg and pray to do what only you can do. In Christ's name, amen.